each week uh, you wait for me to get this little thing turned on. It takes a few seconds for it to come on. I just want to let you know why we do this every week. Uh, we It's recorded, and then probably before you're even done uh, with uh, church, or shortly thereafter, it will be uploaded to the church website. Uh, if you go to the resources tab, you will find Sunday school classes, and uh, we're the fellowship class, and uh, so you can find all the, the lessons, uh, messages there, and, uh, uh, and they do that for other classes too, but uh, uh, ours are there, so it's, it's a good thing. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 10, and we're going to do the end of James I mean, of uh, verse 2 today. It says, well, last week we talked about Peter. It says, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So we're coming to the last three disciples in the first group. Remember, I told you there are three groups in every list of the apostles, there's four lists found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And in all four lists, there are always the same three groups with the same four names in each group. And we're looking at the first group. It's the group that Jesus was closest to. The second group's the next closest. The third group is the least close in terms of Jesus' interpersonal relationship with them within the 12. And so we're looking at this most intimate group. Uh, all four of them came from the same town. They all had the same profession, and all four were in the first group called by Jesus to follow him. Now, if you ask the average American who regularly attends church of some kind, what comes to mind when they hear the names Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, they would probably say something along the lines of, well, those are the apostles. They're people who lived spiritual lives on a much higher plane than we are. Uh, and to make matters worse, we, we call them St. Peter or St. John. And we name cities after them like St. Petersburg uh, or universities like St. John's or churches like St. Andrew's or St. James. Uh, did you know that over the past 100 years, there have been more men in the United States named James than any other name? Uh, I'm not... It's a great name, but I'm not sure most people named James even know where it originally came from. Uh, just as an aside, did you know that if you read the Bible in the original Greek, there's no such name as James? <laughs> That's merely an English derivative of the name Jacobus, uh, which is Greek for what? Jacob. Jacob. Um, so how did the Jewish name Jacob become the name James? Well, we have to blame John Wycliffe, uh, who in the 14th century first translated the Bible into English, and he translated Jacobus as James. It was apparently his way of distinguishing between the Old Testament patriarch and the other New Testament men by the same name. Uh, however, whenever, whenever he referred to the Old Testament patriarch, he maintained the name Jacob. But when he was referring to the New Testament guys, he used the name James. 
uh, and in all future translations, the name stuck. And apparently, especially so in at 1611, when uh, King James authorized the translation that became known as the King James Version, and rather than correcting the misguided decision by Wycliffe, the King James Version translators were more than happy to earn brownie points with a king by continuing to use the name James rather than using Jacob. Um, so that's how you ha came to have the name James in your Bible rather than Jacob, the book of Jacob, and, uh, and to have the names of Jesus' three closest disciples as Peter, James, and John rather than Peter, Jacob, and John. So, yes? Yeah, he didn't do that. So that would have been helpful, wouldn't it? So, so among the people in our society today who have some kind of church background, whether Protestant or Catholic, they tend to think of these guys as superior in terms of holiness and saintliness. Frankly, that's not the way it ought to be. Uh, they were very common men with a very uncommon calling. Uh, and they are very much like we are. And they demonstrate to us the kind of people God uses. I think as we study them, you'll find yourself identifying with them. So let's meet the second guy on the list, Andrew. He is Simon Peter's brother. The Greek name is Andreas. Uh, and uh, it means manly in the sense of being strong, brave, and courageous. Uh, he too was a native of Bethsaida, that little village in Galilee. And he, like his brother, was a fisherman. Uh, prior to following Jesus, he had been a pious, God-fearing Jew. Uh, he'd been a disciple of John the Baptist. In fact, uh, one day when he was with John the Baptist, John saw Jesus as, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Andrew was there that day along with the other John, who was the fisherman. And he and John heard John the Baptist say that, and they immediately began following Jesus. Uh, and Jesus turned to them and said, Wh who do you, what do you seek? And they said, where are you staying? And then they went to where Jesus was staying and they spent the entire day with him. And when that day was over, Andrew went and found his brother Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. And then he took him to meet Jesus. So no sooner did Andrew discover the reality of Jesus Christ for himself than he became an evangelist to his brother. Later on, he and Peter were back down at the Sea of Galilee, and it says in Matthew 4 that they were fishing, casting their nets, and Jesus came along and he called them to leave their nets and to permanently follow him. So Andrew had already met Jesus, had already believed in Jesus, had already affirmed him as the Messiah, but after going back to his fishing, Jesus went to him again along the shore and called him to become his disciple. According to Mark 1.29, Peter and Andrew lived together in the same house. Uh, that was not uncommon in those days for, for entire families to live in one house and just add on additional rooms as needed. So I know that as we've been studying, I keep referring to it as Peter's house there in Capernaum, uh, where Jesus usually stayed when he was in Galilee, but it was also Andrew's house. And so from the very beginning... Andrew becomes a part of the four disciples in the first group. He was not as close to Jesus as the other three, uh, but he shows up quite often in the Gospels in direct discussions with Jesus on how to handle certain matters. 
And one of the other disciples understood that Andrew was one of the more important disciples to Jesus. In fact, uh, John 12 tells us that on one occasion, Philip, who was in group two, uh, a little less intimate with the Lord, had some Greeks come to him and say, we want to see Jesus. And do you know where Philip took him? He took him to Andrew. Uh, Why? Well, that indicates that Philip knew that Andrew was part of that closest group to Jesus. So that's where he took them. And yet, even he wasn't in the the inner circle of three. Uh, But when you read the Gospel of John, you find Andrew emerging from the background. John presents Andrew to us three times. And all three times, Andrew is doing the same thing. It's easy to categorize him. The first time is in John 140, which we just discussed. It says there that one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And in verses 41 and 42 tell us he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Now, if you want to know how to characterize the life of Andrew, it's very simple. He's the one who's always bringing people to Jesus. Uh, The second time we see him is in John 6, verses 8 and 9. Uh, A vast multitude of people are gathered. Jesus is teaching. It's late in the day. The crowd is hungry. There's not enough food. And this time it's Andrew who brought to Jesus the little boy with a lunch of five flat barley crackers and two small fish. And Andrew must have thought the Lord might be able to do something with that, although he says, Lord, this kid has his lunch here, but what is that for so many people? Uh, so he's covering his options, if you, if you will. And, but he had an idea the Lord might be able to do something. He just wasn't certain. But my point here is that he took the boy to Jesus. The third time we meet him is in John 12 uh, that I just mentioned before. Philip brings the Greek Gentiles who were probably proselytes to Judaism to him, and Andrew then took them to see Jesus. And so whenever you see Andrew, he's involved in taking people to see Jesus. Now, in these three incidents, we can draw some insights into the character of Andrew. First of all, we can see Andrew's openness and his lack of prejudice. Uh, He knew that the disciples' primary task was to go to who? No, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Uh, He knew that it was primarily to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But he also understood the Lord's heart because he knew who was it that Jesus originally revealed his Messiahship to? The woman at the well who was a Samaritan. And, and so he real, recognized he, he's not hung up on hyper-Judaism. He didn't have any problem at all with taking some Gentiles to Jesus. So we sense a little bit of the openness of his heart. There just wasn't anyone that he didn't think that Jesus would not want to see. Now, we also see his simple but strong faith. I don't know what he was thinking when he brought that little boy with those five crackers and two fish with such a huge crowd, but he must have had some degree of faith to believe the Lord might be able to do something with that. Uh, After all, he'd seen Jesus make wine, so why couldn't he make food? Um, Third thing we see is his humility. Uh, I mean, he spent his whole life 
Think about this. He spent his whole life being known as Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> yeah. Always living in the shadow of his much more popular brother. Uh, when he found the Messiah, you might have think that he may have been tempted to say, well, I'm not telling Peter. He'll stick his nose in there and take over and I'll get shoved off to the side. I, this is my chance to be somebody. But no, uh, he runs to get Peter knowing full well that as soon as Peter enters the group, he's going to take over the group uh, because that's just the way Peter was. And Andrew would be shoved right back into the background again. But he thought more of the work to be done than of who was in charge. Uh, he he uh, thought more of the cause of the kingdom than he did his own personal and petty problems. Sad to say, you know, you ever met those people who they won't march in the band unless they can be the drum major? You know, um, James and John had that problem, didn't they? Uh, they wanted to be the big shots in the kingdom, but you never see Andrew fighting about who's going to get the glory in the kingdom. Uh, now, I'm not saying he never did. We're told in Mark 9 and Luke 22 that the disciples among, argued among themselves about who was to be the greatest. So Andrew may have joined in that discussion, but you never see a specific incident in which he's pushing and shoving to gain the upper hand and become one of Jesus' inner circle. You see, Andrew is the picture of all those who labor quietly in humble places. Uh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Andrew's not a pillar like Peter, James, and John. He's a humbler stone. Uh, I mean, after all, he's one of the original two called, and yet he wasn't, and he wasn't a part of the inner three, but it didn't seem to bother him. He was, he was always Peter's brother. He's one of those rare people who's willing to take second place. Uh, one of those rare people who wants to be in support one of those rare people who don't mind being hidden as long as the work is being done. He's the kind of man that all leaders depend upon. Uh, he's the kind of person that everyone knows is the, actually the real backbone of the ministry. Uh, the cause of Christ is dependent on self-forgetting souls who are content to occupy a small sphere and an obscure place free from self-seeking ambition. And yet in the kingdom... Remember, Andrew's going to sit on a throne judging the tribes of Israel. Uh, God uses the people like Andrew, and, and only God can calculate their value because sometimes it takes an Andrew to reach a Peter. Uh, there, there was an obscure Methodist preacher of the 18th century named Thomas Mitchell, who was a man like Andrew. I doubt any of you have ever heard of him. I, I had never heard of him before studying for this lesson. When he died, the conference of ministers who ministered with him wrote his obituary, and this is what it said. Thomas Mitchell, an old soldier of Jesus Christ, a man of slender abilities as a preacher and who enjoyed only a very defective education. How's that for an obituary? <laughs> Slender abilities and a defective education. And yet one friend wrote this. His earnest and loving work caused him to lead many people to Christ. Mm. Let me tell you about one incident in the life of this man who his fellow pastors referred to as a man of slender abilities. 
He went to serve as a pastor in the little village of Wrangell in Lincolnshire, England. And he arose at 5 a.m. every morning to go out to prepare to preach the gospel in the open air during the day. And so fiery was his preaching that he became an irritation to the locals. And he was arrested. And in the midst of his arrest, a mob attacked him. And he was taken to the public house for a hearing before the village magistrate to determine what to do with him. And the crowd convinced the magistrate to let them throw Mitchell into a filthy, slimy pond. So they threw him in, and when he tried to get out, they threw him back in seven times. And then they painted him from head to toe with white paint, and they took him back to the public house. And after a long debate about what to do with him, they decided to drown him. So they dragged him to a small lake outside the village, and they threw him in the water. And every time he came to the surface, a man in the crowd with a long pole would shove him back under. And finally, he was taken out of the lake, more dead than alive. And he was taken to a little house in the village where he was looked after by a godly old lady. And when the mob found out that he was recovering, found out where he was, they went to the house and they told him they would tear him limb from limb unless he promised never to preach again. And he refused to make such a promise. But somehow he managed to escape that place, and he later wrote about the incident and said, All the time God kept me in perfect peace, and I was able to pray for my enemies. And for the rest of his life, he continued to serve in obscure faithfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but Thomas Mitchell doesn't sound like a man of slender abilities to me. And yet no one knows about him. But you do now. Few have ever heard about him. Uh, he ministered in obscurity. He was a faithful man. God needs Thomas Mitchells. And God needs Andrews, people who obscurely and quietly bring others to Jesus. There's a third name in the first group, James, the son of Zebedee. In two out of the four lists of the disciples found in Scripture, his name is listed next to Peter's. And yet we don't know, we, we know very little about him. In the gospel accounts, he never appears alive apart from his brother John. And he's always mentioned first. Uh, that probably indicates that he was the older, but also that he was the leader of this rather dynamic duo. Uh, he was probably the more zealous and passionate of the two. Uh, the brothers were also fishermen who worked with their father, Zebedee who was probably a fairly well-to-do man because, according to Mark 1.20, he employed hired servants in his business. So they had a pretty good fishing business going there on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And James fits into this first group because he was in the early calling by Jesus. Because so little is said about him, James appears more like a silhouette than a detailed portrait, and so we have to get a picture of him that's based on a few events. I think the best way to look at James is to consider what the Lord named him and his brother John. In Mark 3.17, Jesus referred to them as Boanerges. Now you probably say Boanerges, but that's your poor English pronunciation of the Greek word Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. 
if James was the older and thus the leader of the two, then Jesus is saying that he was a passionate, zealous, fervent, aggressive guy. In fact, one lexicon I consulted says this title, quote, seems to denote fiery and destructive zeal that may be likened to a thunderstorm, end quote. Uh, you know, zeal is a great virtue. Uh, you love one who, someone who is aggressive, who's charged up, who wants to get the job done. But very often what comes with zeal is a lack of discernment and wisdom. Sometimes an overly zealous individual is shooting off at the mouth. His guns are blazing before he's really thought the thing through. Uh, you say, can God use somebody like that? Well, yes, he did, as a matter of fact. Uh, several incidents stand out. I'll show you where James has mentioned how he acts. In Luke 9, 51 and 52, we're told, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. So it's approaching the time of the Passion Week, Jesus' final week before his crucifixion. And he sends messengers ahead to a village of the Samaritans to let them know that the Messiah was coming. But, verse 53 says, but they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. Listen, the Samaritans hated the Jews in Jerusalem. They had their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim. They probably cursed at those messengers and threw stones at them as they chased them out of town. And so these messengers came back and they said, they're not going to receive you in such and such a village. And then in verse 54, we meet the sons of thunder. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? In other words, Lord, these people don't deserve to live. Let us just zap them with fire from heaven and burn them up. That was their great missionary heart. Uh, let's just destroy anyone who rejects you, Lord. But it says that Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. That was not the time for judgment for the, the ungodly. That time will come someday. But that was the time for the proclamation of the new covenant. So James had a lot of zeal, but very little sensitivity. Despite seeing Jesus' compassion for the lost demonstrated over and over, he's ready to wipe them out when they didn't receive Christ. Now, I have to admit, there, there's a sense in which James' attitude's commendable. Believers ought to be disturbed and righteously angry when the Lord is dishonored and reviled. Uh, Jesus himself was angered when his father's house was profaned, but he didn't return evil for evil, and he forbids his followers to do so. So James was zealous, he was explosive, he was passionate, but his zeal was often misguided. Look at another incident in Matthew 20. Uh, very often, zealous people are also ambitious people. They are very goal-oriented, very task-oriented. And so we see this familiar story in which James and John get their mama to go see Jesus. And starting in verse 20, it says... Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? 
She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now, if all you had were these two verses, you could, couldn't be certain that James and John were there. But it will become apparent that they were standing nearby as the story proceeds. So these guys are eager for authority. They're eager to be put into positions to get things done. They're eager for power. So they get their mom to go to Jesus and say, Lord, would you please put my boys on the two thrones next to you? I mean, it's obvious they're the cream of the crop among this group of your disciples here. I mean, my boys are gifted. Don't you see it? I mean, Zebedee and I see it. And they're the, they're the ones who have the most zeal of all your disciples. And in verse 22, Jesus just completely ignores her. And he turns to James and John. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. I mean, they're just full of themselves, aren't they? They are zealous. They're ambitious. They think they're ready for anything. And Jesus says, verse 23, Oh, guys, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. And then in verse 24, the other disciples get all indignant with James and John for asking Jesus for such on their behalf. Believe me, they weren't indignant at the gall of James and John, but they were just upset they hadn't thought of doing the same thing first. But James was ambitious. It's a terrible thing for them to do, to arouse this spirit of rivalry, to clamor for honor before the Lord as if he's some kind of dictatorial ruler who could dispense his patronage on the principle of favoritism. They're demeaning Christ and his kingdom. But notice that the Lord told him, my cup you shall drink. In other words, James, before you ever get a throne, you're going to get a cup, and you're going to drink it all the way. And the cup is suffering because the way to the throne is always the way of the cross. And 14 years later, James got his request. We're told about that in Acts 12, 1 to 3. It says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So the first guy that Herod goes after in the church is James. I mean, Peter was well established as the primary leader of the apostles, but Herod went after James. Why? Because James may have been more publicly thunderous and unrelenting and thus more confrontational in his ministry. That was his nature. And when the Jews were happy about Herod executing James, then he has Peter arrested. And since the Jews are happy about James' execution, that's a pretty strong indicator that James was still bold and confrontational in his evangelism. He was probably a lot like Stephen, the first martyr. If you read his sermon to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, he was bold in his confrontation of the Jewish religious leaders. And they got so angry, they took him out and stoned him to death. And James was probably just like that. Direct, uncompromising, zealous for the truth. And it made the Jews angry at him. So they were thrilled 
that Herod chose to arrest him and chop off his head. I mean, when you choose to go after James rather than Peter, the recognized leader of the church, that says something for the kind of preacher James must have been. And he, he was a strong, zealous man. He, so he consequently, he made, quickly made enemies out of the Jews. He's the first apostle to be martyred. He'd wanted a crown. Jesus gave him a cup. He had desired, desired power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. What kind of people does God use? Well, he does use the great leaders like Peter. He uses the quiet, behind-the-scenes, obscure, faithful people like Andrew. And he can use the brash, courageous, zealous, sometimes loveless and sensitive people like James. Because Christ transforms hearts and directs their zeal, and that's what he did with James. James was still bold and direct and unrelenting in his commitment to Christ, but it was now directed in a manner which pleased the Lord. But it finally came to a place where James did die for Jesus. So both the brothers drank the cup. For John, the cup was a long life of rejection and death and exile. For James, it was a short flame and martyrdom. You know, a lack of sensitivity can just destroy a ministry. There are many people who try to serve Christ who are utterly insensitive to their congregations, to their families, to the people around them. There are many pastors and evangelists and missionaries who are so oriented on accomplishing the task before them that they miss the people. Zeal with insensitivity is so cruel. And James had to be refined. He had to get from the place where he said, just burn them up, Lord. If they don't cooperate, just burn them up to a place where he proclaimed the truth boldly and without compromise, but he still cared for the people in their souls. When I was a police captain, we were about to promote some men to sergeant. We had three positions and five candidates. <clears throat> two of the candidates were clearly qualified, so we very quickly selected them to fill two of the positions. So we were left with three candidates and only one position left to fill. One candidate was clearly unqualified. He was wishy-washy, indecisive, and not respected as a leader by others, so we eliminated him from consideration. Another candidate was well-respected, very knowledgeable, easy to get along with, but his one fault was that he lacked self-initiative. He would do whatever he was told, but he wasn't a self-starter. The last candidate was a man who was arrogant, brash, bold, very much a self-starter, but who was often very irritating to us in leadership because he would jump into things without considering the potential consequences. He was hard to control, and he often ran afoul of department policies during his career. So I and the other two captains recommended to the chief that we promote the man who was respected and easy to get along with, even though he lacked self-initiative. But the chief's response was, I'm going to promote the man who's hard to control. I would rather have a dog that I have to pull on the leash to hold him back than one that I'm constantly having to kick in the rear to get him going. <laughs> you see, the principle is this. In most cases, the best candidate for leadership, whether in business or ministry, is one who has passion, eagerness, enthusiasm, and zeal, even though he has a potential for failure 
rather than a congenial man who gets along with everybody, but you constantly have to push him to get him to do his job. There are exceptions to that rule, but as a general rule, it usually results in stronger leaders who accomplish more. And that's the kind of person James was. He was the dog who was constantly pulling on the leash, eager to get going, willing to run roughshod over and if need be to maul the opponents. But Jesus kept pulling on that leash and holding him back until James became the kind of apostle who was still bold for the faith, but who was power under control. What kind of men does God use? What kind of women does God use? What kind of people fit into his plan? Dynamic people like Peter, leaders who can get everybody to join the ministry. Humble people like Andrew who just quietly work behind the scenes. And those like James who don't need other people to motivate them because they're filled with zeal and passion. Finally, the last individual mentioned in this first group is John, the brother of James. Unlike Andrew and James, John is one of the most prominent disciples in the New Testament. He not only figures prominently in the gospel accounts, but he wrote one of the gospels himself, as well as three epistles in the book of Revelation. Now I would like to add that church history has not been kind to John's personal character. Many people think of John as some kind of meek, mild, effeminate guy laying back with his head on Jesus' shoulders, sort of looking up at Jesus with a dove-eyed stare. Uh, And if that's the image you have, you missed it. He was a part of all those incidents involving James that we just read. He was one of the sons of thunder. He was an intolerant, ambitious, power-seeking, sit me on your right side or left side in the kingdom kind of guy. He was zealous. He was explosive. He was a burn him up with fire man, although perhaps not as much as James. Now, it's interesting to note that the only time he appears alone by name in the Gospels, it's not favorable to John. Do you know what he was doing? He was mad at a guy for casting out demons. In Mark 9:38, he went to Jesus and reported, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. In other words, Lord, there's a guy casting out demons in your name, but he's not in our group, so I told him to stop. So John was intolerant, sectarian, and narrow-minded. He was like the folks who say, well, if you're not a part of our church or our denomination, then you must not truly be saved. Those kind of people need to read how Jesus responded to John in Mark 9, 39 and 40. He said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. Jesus was saying that those who are truly acting in his name will not say anything that opposes Christ or that does not accord with sound doctrine about Christ. That's the problem with so many false teachers today. They claim to be performing miracles uh, for the, in Jesus' name, but their doctrine of Christ and his gospel is faulty and slanderous, and thus they're speaking evil of him. 
And Jesus thus points out that there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are truly for Christ and those who are opposed to him. And those who hold to the truth about Christ and his gospel are to be received as fellow followers of Jesus, regardless of what church they attend. We may disagree with them on issues such as baptism or eschatology and cessation of the sign gifts, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have joyful fellowship with them as fellow believers in Christ. John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul provide us an excellent example of that kind of relationship. Although they disagreed about those secondary issues, they agreed 100% on the doctrines of God, Christ, and salvation. And so they were tremendous friends who fought many battles against heresy together. But John was initially one of those narrow-minded, unbending, intolerant kind of guys. But you know something? He had a tremendous capacity for love. He also had a a tremendous capacity for love. So God took this man and transformed his heart so that he came to understand the balance between truth and love. The Holy Spirit took John's heart and taught him how to proclaim the importance of love without compromising the truth. So if he had to speak the truth in love, if he was to speak the truth in love, he had to be as much committed to the truth as he was to love. And so you find two things that stand out in John's ministry, the word love and the word testify. He uses various forms of the word love 117 times in his New Testament writings. In fact, in just the seven little chapters that make up his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he uses the word love 53 times in 33 verses. And he uses the word testify and testimony, form of the same word, 73 times in his New Testament writings. He was always testifying to the truth and always the teacher of love. And so he is the personification of speaking the truth in love. It's good that his love was controlled by his testimony to the truth. He was a truth seeker. He wanted to know the truth. His heart hungered for the truth as well as for a deep love for Christ and his followers. He wanted to gather every word that came out of his Lord's lips as well as bask in the light of his love. So he became a lover, but a lover whose love was controlled by the truth. And that control was born out of that tremendous zeal that he had in his personality, that that passion, that strength, that fiery character. And in case you think he lost that fire and passion that he had as one of the sons of thunder, just read 1st and 2nd John, where he denounces those false teachers who stand up and twist and pervert sound doctrine. He calls them what? Antichrists. He was firm. He's strong. He knew where the lines were drawn. His love was never some kind of sappy sentimentalism. But at the same time, he's characterized by love. In his own gospel, John states in chapter 13, verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John never uses his own name. Instead, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, why would he describe himself that way? 
because he was so overwhelmed that Jesus actually loved him. Remember, he's originally a man who wants to call down fire on unbelievers. He wanted nothing to do with that those who weren't a part of their own little group. He had a great need for love. But with his personality, I'm sure there weren't many people who ever showed great genuine love for him. Yes? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But at the same time, at the same time, who was Peter running around with? John. And John became a great counterbalance to Peter. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. He, and it also speaks to the tremendous transformation that comes when Christ changes a heart. Yeah, Jesus loved him. John marveled at it. And so he referred to himself as a disciple who Jesus loved. He referred to himself that way four more times in John. Chapter 19, 26, 20, verse 2, 21, 7, and 21, 20. And so when John, when Jesus loved John, John was so overwhelmed that he received that love and he began to love Jesus and others in return in the same way. It wasn't a sickly sentimentalism. It wasn't arrogant bragging on his part that says, oh, I'm so wonderful. The Lord loves me so much. I just want you to know I'm the disciple he loves. It was nothing like that. No, it was the very opposite. It was, it was, hey, folks, I'm the guy that wanted to burn up the Samaritans. I'm the guy that wanted Jesus to give me a place I didn't even deserve. And yet he still loved me. It's a celebration of grace. Jesus never had to ask John if he loved him like he had to ask Peter. Jesus never had to tell John to follow him like he had to tell Peter. And when it came down to delegating out responsibilities, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. What did he tell John? Take care of my mother. There was something special about John. Tradition tells us that John never left the city of Jerusalem until Mary died because he kept his vow to the Lord. So John was a son of thunder, but he was a, became a tender, loving man who would never compromise his convictions. He taught on love. Over and over again, he wrote how God is a God of love, how the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, how God loved the disciples, how he loves the world, how he loves all believers. And he taught that believers are to love one another and that love fulfills all the commandments. And those themes run throughout all of his writings. You can also see the testimony to the truth in his writings also. He testifies to seeing and touching and handling Christ. He speaks of the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the scriptures, the witness of the Father, the witness of Christ, the witness of the, uh, the testimony of the miracles, the testimony of the Holy Spirit the testimony of the apostles. He's, he's always speaking the truth in love. Now let me wrap up our study of these first four disciples. You know, last week was Peter with this. What kind of people does God use? Think about it. When God took on flesh and came into the world and walked among men, he picked out four men to be particularly close to him. One was Peter, 
a dynamic, strong, bold, opinionated leader who took charge, but very often blew it and failed. Another was humble, gentle, and inconspicuous, Andrew, who didn't see the crowds, but he always saw the individuals in the crowd. And while he never attracted a large group, he just kept bringing people to Jesus. And then he picked James, a man who was zealous, passionate, uncompromising, insensitive at first, ambitious, who could see a goal and go for it with all his might and die in the process. And then there was John, brash, zealous, intolerant at first, but also sensitive and loving, who Jesus transformed so that he spoke the truth in love so much that he attracted people to himself. And Jesus transformed all of them from being fishermen into fishers of men, in spite of what they were. And they all became foundation layers for the church and suffered for their faithfulness. I already told you about Peter's death by crucifixion. Let me tell you about these other men. Tradition tells us that Andrew had the privilege of leading the wife of a provincial governor to Christ. And the governor was so upset that he demanded that his wife reject Christ. And when she refused, the governor had Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross, which became the symbol of Andrew in church history. Uh, history tells us that he was on that cross for two days. And as he hung alive for those two days, he continued without ceasing to preach the gospel of Christ in the midst of his agony, agony, still trying to bring people to Jesus. Tradition tells us that when James had been sentenced to death and was about to be beheaded, the Roman soldier who guarded him was so impressed with his courage and constancy of spirit that he fell down at the apostle's feet and repented of his sin and asked if the apostle would forgive him for the part he had played in the rough treatment James had received. And James is said to have lifted up the man, embraced him, kissed him, and said, Peace, my son, peace to you, and pardon of your faults. And the soldier was said to have been so moved by James' compassion that he publicly confessed his surrender to Christ and was immediately beheaded alongside James. After a long life of ministry, much of it as the overseer of the churches in Asia Minor, John was in his mid-90s, banished to a small barren isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the west coast of Asia Minor. If you go there today, the tour guides will show you the cave in which tradition says that John lived out his final years. But he kept writing, sending letters back to the churches, including all three of his epistles and the book of Revelation. He died around 98 or 100 AD during the reign of the Emperor Trajan, and Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch, both of whom were John's disciples, along with Arrhenius, who was Polycarp's disciple, were the men who knew the most about John. And they said a constant phrase was their reminder of him. And it was the phrase, my little children love one another. What a group. Just simple, ordinary men with all the struggles, all the strengths, all the weaknesses of people like us. And yet by the power of Christ, they were transformed. So what kind of people does God use? Any kind. It's, it's not what you are, it's what you're willing to become that is the issue. The fishermen of Galilee became fishers of men on the most extensive scale, and by the help of God, on, they gathered many souls into the church, and by the testimony to Jesus that they gave to the 
in the Gospels and in the Epistles, they are still bringing multitudes to Christ. Jesus can take very common people like you and me and make them into uncommon ministers for him. The question is, are you available for him to do that in your life? That's the question. And that brings us to the end of the first group. We still have two more groups to study. Any questions or comments before we... Yes, Richard. I understand John was the youngest. Yes, John was probably the youngest. Did that influence any of what you said, any of his biography, you think? Saying rash things, this young man. Oh, uh, well, yeah. And he's got an older brother who's leading the way in it. So, uh, yeah, in my mind, he was rash, brash and bold. I don't think he was as brash and bold as his older brother. Could be wrong, but... Anything else? Yes, Tim? Yeah, there's just history disagrees many times. You don't know for certain. He may have been, I, I've also read he may have been released and went back to Ephesus where he died. So you don't know for certain. What did James run through with a sword? He was killed with a sword. And whether that was run through or beheaded, we can't say. That's different, James. The other, the other James, who was the half brother of Jesus, he was old camel knees. He was called camel knees because he was prayed so much on his knees, he had calluses on his knees, and that was his nickname. All right, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for these men who you chose, ordinary men with the same flaws that we have in our lives, and yet you transformed them into the apostles who became the foundation for the church, who taught the truth stood for the truth without compromise and yet with love for those that they were serving. I pray that uh, you would make all of us like them, that we would be transformed in our hearts, that we would serve you passionately and yet with love for one another. Bless us now as we go into the worship service. Help us to focus our attention on you and on and on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.